Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have an exciting conversation for you today with comedian Daniel Ryan Spaulding. We'll get to Daniel in a second. But first, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and to be notified every time we post a new episode. Daniel Ryan Spaulding is a stand-up comedian, writer, and influencer who's performed in over 50 countries worldwide. He is Canadian, but lived in Europe for 12 years with his comedy career mainly overseas. He moved to New York City last year, where he's performed his popular one-man off-Broadway show, Power Gay. He has been an advocate against anti-Semitism, against Hamas, and against extremism on the left and right. He believes in a pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian, pro-peace agenda. Daniel, welcome into the back room. Thank you so much, Andy. So I want to start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where were you raised? I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. Um, my dad's family was Croatian, and uh, I'm actually just about to get my Croatian citizenship right now, which is awesome. Oh, wow. But um, but yeah, I uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, um, and, but I've lived in Europe for the past 12 years. I just recently I just recently moved to New York. You do a lot in your videos about politics and global affairs and very topical, very important issues. I'm curious to know what kind of environment you grew up in when you were a child, when you were a teenager. Was your family conservative? Were they more on the liberal spectrum? I think it was pretty divided. My mother was always very liberal. My father was always very conservative. Um, some of my family is very, very apathetic and doesn't even think about politics. Um, I was raised in sort of a working class um, community in the suburbs outside of Vancouver. Um, and the teachers at my school were all very liberal and socially aware. And um, that was a big uh, thing that influenced me as well. Canada is a very multicultural society, and I grew up with people of all different uh, backgrounds. And um, and so I think that for the most part, my upbringing was pretty well-rounded. And so being a young gay person growing up in Vancouver, you didn't experience the kind of things that happen in this country in a lot of cases to young folks? Well, I think I, I grew up at a really, I was sort of lucky to grow up at the time that I did because uh, I would say by the time, there was sort of a real turning point in terms of gay rights. And I think it was 1998. Um, I remember and have memories of uh, the early 90s and the late 80s and all the movies regarding uh, AIDS and HIV and how much hate and prejudice there was towards mm -hmm. gay men. And I found that very scary and very traumatizing as a little boy because on some level I always knew that I was gay. And then when Will and Grace uh, <laughs> became popularized, it brought this like level of like gay joy to the mainstream and gay humor to the mainstream in a way that was open and people could sort of um, identify with these characters and they loved these characters. And I think that really shifted um, like the public's perception of being gay. And, uh, and I was 13 at that time. And so I think that uh, I, I was sort of lucky to be uh, able to experience both the hard times 
and the good times because basically by the time I was 19, we had marriage equality in Canada. Mm -hmm. So there was really never a time as a young adult where I haven't felt like I lived in a country where I couldn't have equal rights. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think in that way, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. Isn't it kind of crazy that it takes like a television sitcom to change our society, to change the way, the, the, the cultural thinking with these it kind is, of things? It's, it's, it is the power of television and the power of storytelling. And it's not necessarily that there weren't people that were accepting of gay people and had gay friendships. It's just that people needed to see it. People needed to see it and be aware of it. So this past year has been a big year for you. You've undergone quite a transformation. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I had been uh, living in Berlin, Germany for the past five years. Berlin is sort of uh, like a hub for a lot of young European uh, artists. And, uh, and I had been there for a little while. I'd been doing stand-up comedy throughout Europe. And uh, I had sort of built up a career there. But I needed to... Uh, I, I was sort of stuck in a rut. I was dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety, and I had developed a very serious drinking problem. And so about a year and a half ago, I managed to get sober. And uh, I was also very uh, obese. I was over 400 pounds. And I was, I was really having a hard time, and I really wanted my life to be different. I just didn't know how to make it happen. But once I got sober, I was able to sort of put a plan together and I got um, gastric sleeve surgery, and I um, I managed to lose. As of now, I managed to lose two hundred and forty-five pounds. That's incredible. Yeah. So uh, I also had to get like a lot of other surgeries too. Like I had to get a tummy tuck and a mastectomy and a facelift. Uh, because there's so much loose skin after you lose weight. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really amazing, like just the spiritual, the spiritual journey that I took with it. You know, I did a lot of journaling and I did a lot of reflection and I took a lot of time to just sort of process everything I had been through. Because when you're overweight for most of your life, I was overweight pretty much since I was seven years old. And it's a very different way to go through the world than to be a thing person. Mm -hmm. And the things that I've learned, like the, the, I had no idea that I was under so much stress and pain and just these daily humiliations that you go through and the way people speak to you, like mm -hmm. being thin, it's really like, it's like I'm in a twilight zone. Like it's a completely different reality. So, um, so it's been fascinating and, um, but now, you know, I really feel like I had a second chance at life. I feel like I am the person I was always meant to be. Like, everything is now, like, I can really just be myself now, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, as Andy Cohen would say, we got to give a big mazel to Daniel. Uh -huh. Thanks, Andy. No, I mean, look, I've, I watched your video where you explain the facelift situation. And yeah. it was really interesting to me because you're right. After you lost all that weight, you looked old. I did. And you're yeah. not an old you're not an old guy. Skin. And so no. you I mean it, it's incredible. And I guess you're also right when you say that if you get that kind of stuff done, you gotta get it done by someone who knows what the fuck they're doing. Because there's yeah. so many people in show business that we know of, women in particular, who get work done on their face and it is like looks like I did it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that uh, 
like filler has become a real problem. Um, I, I really love plastic surgery. I think everyone should do whatever they want to do, but I think that filler, especially in the cheekbones has become a problem because it kind of sinks. Mm. Um, I, I tell people like, you know, to try to stay off the filler, get a little Botox. And then when you're about like, when you're in your fifties, get one really good facelift. And then that'll last you like for a, for a good 10 or 20 years, you know, like facelifts, people are scared of facelifts, but they're really not that scary. Like you look like, uh, you look like really swollen for like a week or so. And then it still takes like another month or two for the swelling to really go down. But like, I loved my facelift. I thought it was fantastic. Well, you look, I mean, you look great. Uh, you you got, you did have a great doctor. He was, uh, what country was it again where you went? I went to Turkey. The Turkish, they know how to do plastic surgery. Oh, I had a hair transplant too as well in Turkey. Uh, but yeah, Dr. Gunsel Ozter. He's like a celebrity plastic surgeon in Turkey. He's great. He's a very nice man. I love him. When I was watching your video, I was like, wow, Americans won't vacation in Turkey because it's oh. sort of unsafe right now. Well, I'm European, right? Like in Europe, we go to Turkey all the time. Yeah. Everyone gets their work done at Turkey. Well, congratulations on all that stuff because, you know, well, you, you. you got to be happy with who you are and, and part of how you look and how you feel is, is a huge part of that. Um, yeah. So you are a global comic. You've performed everywhere, Germany, Norway, Amsterdam, Eastern Europe, Asia, the Balkans. When I saw the Balkans, yeah. I was like, do they, do they actually laugh in the Balkans? <laughs> is there humor in the yeah. Balkans? Totally. Yeah, way more than in Germany. But you're doing everything in English when you perform. Yeah, people speak English. People speak English everywhere, like especially in the smaller European countries because they don't dub their television. So in the larger countries like Spain, France, Germany, they um, dub like American TV shows Mm -hmm. into their original language. Whereas the Netherlands, Belgium, Slovenia, Croatia, all these little European countries or Scandinavia, they just played it in English with subtitles, mm. so everyone can uh, speak English. And how does it, how does it work speaking English and doing comedy in a foreign country, even if the people speak English? I would imagine, isn't there still some kind of language barrier or perception right. or timing with which they get the joke differently than someone who's yeah. really fluent? Like, do you, have you found that? Yeah, so I basically, like, living in Europe for so long, I had a few things going for me. One was that I had a Canadian accent, which is very neutral. Um, And the other is that a lot of my content was more so storytelling and personal and about observations. Um, With sometimes British comedians, when they perform in Europe, they have a harder time. Because British accents, especially if they're um, they're from like a you know like a region like more regional accents, they're harder for people to understand. And also, there's more like uh, words that they might not know or colloquialisms. Mm-hmm. And um, and also um, like uh, jokes that are language oriented or puns or something like that people might not have a hard have a harder time understanding if English is their second language. But um, for me, because I, I would speak clearly and my comedy was always about 
my experiences, people could relate to that. Mm -hmm. It was never about specific political things in different countries, or I would tailor um, material. I would have material if I was going to Slovenia, I would have, you know, stuff about specific to Slovenia, or if I was in Norway, I have things specific to Norway. So you end up building this sort of repertoire of um, material all about different regions and different countries in Europe. It was awesome. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Do you get political when you're in other countries about that country's politics? Um, if it's something that everyone, for the most part, agrees on or um, something historical, um, there could be some some things that you would be able to talk about for sure. Mm -hmm. But it always you always do run the risk of alienating people if it's a topic you don't necessarily know uh, like a lot about. So you got to be careful. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, you burst onto the scene, so to speak, with a viral video. It was called "If Gay Guys Said the Shit Straight People Say." Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was almost ten years ago, almost. Which is pretty funny. I'm actually gonna, we're going to play a little bit of it for our audience, and then I want to talk to you about it. Sure. You totally remind me of my friend Kevin. He's straight too. Can I ask you a question? When did you realize you were straight? Ugh, that's so straight. <laughs> oh, I don't mean straight in a heterophobic way. I just mean, you know, dumb and stupid. So your brother is straight too? Oh my God, what are the odds? So with you and your girlfriend, how do you decide who does what? It's not a problem that you're straight, but do you have to show it off so much? You know, the, the brilliant thing about that is that it's just so true that we don't realize like how yeah. many times people have said such really stupid shit when they're talking to a gay person. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I think I realized that from, that was at a time when I was traveling a lot and touring throughout Europe. And so I was constantly meeting new people all the time. Like I would, I'd be doing like five shows a week. And so I have to, I just constantly be having to have small talk with people. And, uh, and for some people, I guess maybe they hadn't really met a lot of gay people before. And I was just constantly encountering these questions. Um, but what I loved about that video was that it was a really nice way to sort of flip the script and, and I, and, uh, do something subversive. And I realized that's sort of when my comedy is at its best, when I'm able to sort of, um, to be subversive and, and like to switch different roles to make a point. And actually that video ended up um, inspiring Buzzfeed. They did a whole series about like, if uh, like shit, uh, and like if white people said this stuff, mm -hmm. or, no, like, like if Asian people said this stuff, white people say, black people said this stuff. Mm -hmm. white oh, I, I remember say. that actually. Oh, yeah, oh. that was because they, like I was the first one who did it and then they did it with every other group. So it really, opened up a conversation about talking about privilege in our society and talking about microaggressions. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm really, I'm really proud of that. It was almost 10 years ago, well, that video. Do you think people, even people who are maybe just a teeny weeny little bit homophobic, but they love their gay comedians, you know, someone like Ellen, if she wasn't a comedian, they probably wouldn't want to go near, you know, because they're homophobic but they love Ellen the comic or right. Sean Hayes on Will and Grace, you know? Like, it's just a weird phenomenon. And it just seems like gay comics seems to transcend a lot of the craziness that 
regular gay folk have to deal with? Yeah, well, I do think the world has changed a lot. I think that homophobia now isn't as um, outrightly hateful as it used to be. I think it's more, um, it's more, uh, th there is that for sure. But I think that people just, they have a cognitive dissonance around it. Uh, they don't realize that Hollywood, most of the people that you see in film and television are gay. Like entertainers and artists are gay. Like Freddie Mercury, all these big rock stars, they're gay. Like gay people love the arts. Gay people love being creative. Um, and so I think it's the sort of thing where um, until you really have a family member or a loved one or a child or a brother or a sister who's gay, then you you have to you, you'll never be confronted with really having to accept and love a gay person. So it can always be something that's sort of, uh, you know, yeah, I, uh, I, as long as they don't rub it in my face sort of thing. Um, but I think that that's why it's so important. This is what Harvey Milk always said. It's so important to come out of the closet because if people understand that gay people are not one specific thing, one like flamboyant drag queen in a bar, you know, that, that gay people are mailmen and truck drivers. And well, I guess that's maybe stereotypical for lesbian, but policemen and firefighters. He said it, folks, not me. And <clears throat> lawyers and, you know, like gay people are, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like uh, in a high school. In a high school, there's, you know, the band geeks and the jocks and mm -hmm. being gay is a high school. There's every different kind of gay person in the world in the same way there's every different kind of person in a high school. Mm -hmm. So uh, once you eventually realize that and you, you know people that are gay and have gay people in your life, then you realize it's not that big of a deal. So, <clears throat> so let's talk about The Power Gay. Uh, that is yeah. the, the, that is the title of your off-Broadway show. You actually have a couple of shows coming up in March, March 2nd and 3rd at Red Eye New York in Manhattan. Um, so what does power gay mean? Well, uh, I would say there's two aspects to it. One is uh, I started doing these videos, um, like as I was traveling, I would do monologues, like little monologue videos uh, as this sort of power gay role like a high status gay man who, you know, lives a fabulous life and goes to all the best restaurants and all the best night spots. So I have a bunch of videos where it's like power gays of Brussels, power gays of London. And I would talk to gay men in those cities and get really specific um, details about what life was like there. Um, and, you know, just inside jokes and, and, uh, you know, different maybe people in that community or bars in that community. And so I started building this sort of character of a, of a power gay. And because there are power gays in every city, like gay men, we love to like live a good life. We love to, we're successful, we're gorgeous. Like we have it going on. And so it's sort of a fun thing to sort of both make fun out of because we do also have a good sense of humor about ourselves. Like gay men are really one of the only groups of people that can handle like a hard hitting joke, you know, like we're not little babies and we're not easily offended, which I also love about being gay. Um, so I was sort of building that brand and playing with that brand. And a lot of my show is about uh, that world. 
and about how my aspirations to become a power gay. And then the other part of it is the fact that one of the reasons why gay men are so successful is because we had to overcome an incredible, an incredible amount of adversity, especially gay men in their 30s, 40s, and 50s and older who had to really face a lot of prejudice and a lot of, um, a lot of difficult times and feeling like we didn't belong, feeling like society, um, we're being raised in a society where, we, um, where we're taught to hate ourselves. And it is a unique experience to be a gay man because, um, because on the one hand, you have sort of the privilege or the, the privilege of being a man, yet the expectation of, of, having, uh, of having to live up to those expectations of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and so it's the sort of thing where both men can identify with us because we are men, we have that experience, but women can identify with gay men too because we're in, we're both in relationships with men, sorry, straight women, I mean, can identify with us because we're both in relationships with men. We mm. know what it's like to love a man, to have our heart broken by a man. And lesbians can understand gay men because we're both gay. So um, so I think that the perspective of a gay man is, uh, is one that everyone can identify with to some degree. Mm-hmm. And we are underdogs and we do end up overcoming adversity and succeeding and we have lots of beautiful stories and we should honor that and uh and tell our stories and you know everything you're saying as i'm listening to you uh makes me think that the same could be said about our fellow jews me being one of them um Mm -hmm. it is uh a lot of what you said just uh, i think i feel applies uh to jews in the same way so then of course being a gay jewish man i would imagine just sort of heaps on another element to this whole thing which is a good segue to the conversation i want to have with you about israel and anti-semitism and the videos yeah. you've been making you're very outspoken and you're very uh i would say controversial to some not to me i love your videos i love the message of them but I, I do know that probably a lot of people don't agree with that messaging. But I want to play one clip and then we'll talk about that. I think it's a little ironic that the people who seem to be defending Hamas online are also the ones they'd be most likely to kill. Oh, no, no. I'm sure the Islamic terrorists would love you, queer intellectual feminist. We're freedom fighters. They're fighting for their land and I'm fighting for my right to purple hair. What the fuck? It's like a girl in a really toxic relationship. I know you don't like him because he kidnaps and murders people, but trust me, when I'm alone with him, he is such a sweetheart. I'm sorry, if your reaction to people being slaughtered, beheaded, raped, and burned alive isn't complete and utter disgust and horror, if your reaction is, yeah, but I mean, why? See it from their perspective. You need to get your fucking head checked, okay? I'm sure Jeffrey Dahmer had a rough childhood. That doesn't mean I empathize with him. If you want to free Palestine, free Palestine from Hamas. When I heard that, it's like, this dude is my spirit animal. I agree with everything you said, and I find it unfathomable to see and witness the things that people in this country are doing and saying in support of terrorists and barbarism and so i think to the people who 
watch your videos and agree with you, you're speaking such an important truth. But what got you going in this particular direction? What motivated you? Um, well, I, uh, I am not Jewish. But I've spent a lot of time in Israel because when I was living in Berlin, I became friends. With okay, wait, wait, wait. Hang on, hang on a second because I'm, now I'm fascinated. I've seen you. Yeah. You have a Star of David around your neck. Yeah, and you are I'm making it in solidarity. My friends wow. are scared to wear a star of David, so I'm wearing it to show them, you know, that they don't have to be afraid. Wow, that's pretty excellent of you. But I didn't know you weren't Jewish. I just assumed you were. No, I'm not. Well, at first, I was sort of. I wasn't like. Uh, I was sort of. I wasn't overtly saying that I wasn't Jewish because, like, I felt like there was actually a little bit of protection in people assuming that I was Jewish. And because now people try to spin it and say, oh, you're not Jewish. What are you getting out of this? Like this sort of typical, like, oh, you Jew lover, like, you know, like people, but people will always find a way to be hateful. Mm -hmm. Anyway, regardless, uh, I became friends with a lot of people uh, in Israel because I, I started to go there uh, and do shows there and stuff. I used to, before I went to Israel, I used to think the same way as these people. I didn't understand the situation. It's really, um, it's really unfortunate. People just don't have the right information. Like I remember um, there was this famous interview where Joan Rivers was coming out of an airport. Yes, absolutely. And, mm -hmm. uh, and she was being asked about the war and she was like, I don't understand, what's the problem? What, what, why, people are crazy, don't they realize Hamas, they're terrorists, they're terrorists. And I remember watching that and thinking, Oh, Joan Rivers, you are so ignorant. Don't you realize they're just there? These people are being oppressed. That's really what I thought. I had no conception of the fact that the Palestinian leadership and Hamas was the problem mm -hmm. and that they were oppressing Palestinian people. That never occurred to me. In anything that I ever heard about Israel, it was always. Israel oppressing Palestinians, Israel oppressing Palestine. It never occurred to me that the problem was Hamas. I always in my head thought of Hamas as like people that are trying to stand up for the, themselves and fight for their land. No, they're a terrorist organization. Mm. I didn't know anything about Israel before I went there. The only images that I saw of Israel were like really extreme settlers in the West Bank who are crazy and are people that like most Israelis do not like agree with or like really right-wing crazy Benjamin Netanyahu kind of people mm -hmm. like I didn't know I didn't know anything I didn't know that Palestine had been offered peace settlements peace treaties I did like four different times throughout the past 70 whatever years I didn't know that um, that when Israel like was created, that they could have had their own Palestinian state. There's so much that I didn't know, and and I didn't know that because it's an intentional thing to try to prevent people from understanding that mm -hmm. you have to do a lot of research and you have to really talk to people and understand it. And like I and and there's a lot of you know. There's a lot of ideological barriers that have put in that have been put in place to prevent people from realizing that. Listen, I don't want war 
I don't want people getting hurt. I don't, I want there to be peace, but you have to understand that Hamas is not a resistance movement. That's all I'm trying to say. It's a terrorist organization mm -hmm. that oppresses and kills and radicalizes its own people and uses them as human shields. They don't think about death in the same way we do. Mm -hmm. They're radical jihadists. And to think that they're fighting for Palestinians or fighting for Muslims, that is so like dangerous to think. And if you, if you start, if you cannot separate those two things, if you allow this to become something, an issue that's hijacked by the right wing, then there is going to be a huge Islamophobic backlash because most mo Muslims, especially people living in this country, are just peace-loving people that want to live a good life. Mm -hmm. We can't group all people, all of these people together and say, you know, Palestinians, freedom is... No, it's a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. And what's happening right now is a war. It's not a genocide. And so, like, I, I want us to have a conversation about genuinely how to have peace in this region. Like, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. But we all have to live in reality and we have to acknowledge facts and we have to acknowledge the situation for what it is and not live in a delusion. So since October 7th, you, we see what's gone on on college campuses, with the hostage posters being torn down. We see the outcries from progressives, from gays, as you you cite in your videos. What do you think is at the root of that? Is it ignorance? Is it is it naivete? Is it anti-Semitism or all of the above? Well, I think it's all of the above, um, and it's scary because you don't know exactly how much of this is sort of a flare-up and how much of it is, wow, we're really headed into dark times right now. I think one of the problems is we are sort of, we've sort of created this society that is, um, people are living in, an, in their own ideological reality, you know? words mean what they mean to me. Like mm -hmm. I say that this word means this and you have to acknowledge that this is how I feel about this word and my feelings are true. Like we've sort of, we've disconnected from objective reality. And, and so as a result, there's, you know, these extreme sort of MAGA people who, and QAnon people who have their own set of facts and information. And now we have this sort of pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas sort of group that has a completely detached, you know, like insane view of what Zionism is and is, you know, believing things that are just factually not true. And um, and so that's one thing that's very scary. Mm -hmm. The other thing is um, we're also living in this world where everyone is obsessed with their own self-image and narcissism and having followers and their popularity like we're all 12 year olds in high school with these fragile little egos mm -hmm. and so no one is saying what needs to be said because no one wants to alienate anyone because they're worried oh i'm gonna lose followers i'm gonna lose my career well when society falls apart and terrorism becomes normal you're probably also gonna lose followers so maybe we should like be talking about these, this issue because this is going to affect all of us. It's our, our safety. It's our public safety. So that's an issue. The other thing is, I think that a lot of, um, from what I've 
talk to, from what I've gathered from talking with uh, different uh, professors, especially Shai Davide, uh, who's a professor at Columbia, who's really come out and blown the whistle on a lot of what's going on on college campuses, is that the young people are not so much the problem, it's the professors and the organizers. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of professors that are encouraging this and have a real, real disdain and hate for Israel. And um, a lot of these young kids, like they know a war is happening. They think it's awful and they want to get involved and they want to do something to, to help. And then the next thing they know, they have these, you know, really radical um, organizers basically getting them to chant Antifada revolution and all these sort of genocidal chants. And they get hooked into this um, this movement, which is being painted as like their Vietnam. Right. Well, I'm sorry, the Viet the anti-war movement for Vietnam was that, but they didn't want any war. Not that they were on the side of the Viet Cong, and so um, so it's 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 a lot of things. But anti-Semitism plays a really important role more than anything else because anti-Semitism is different than other kinds of prejudice. It's a very ancient kind of hate. Mm. And it's been used over and over and over again for centuries and centuries to um, to switch uh, an, uh, like a public discourse and ideology. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool for ideological subversion. It's both kicking down and it's kicking up. Anti-Semitism is very conspiratorial. It's always this idea of like, how are the Jews so successful? How do they have this much money or this much power? It's, it's always very, um, it's, it's a very distorted way of thinking. Jews make up 0.2% of the population, okay? And it's an easy, they're a small minority. And so it's an easy group of people to pick on, especially mm -hmm. if they, they don't have enough allies to defend themselves. And for centuries, they've been put in this situation where society basically come and try to kill them. And then they manage to figure out a way to survive and get stronger as a result of it. You know, if they aren't able to own land, if all they're able to do is uh, do banking, then they get good at banking. And then everyone hates them for the fact that they're good at banking and tries to kill them again. Like it's this insane mm -hmm. cycle that's happened for thousands of years. They've been blamed for the black plague. Like you go through history to just one, the Spanish inquisition, uh, you know, obviously Nazism. It's a tool. Mm -hmm. It's a tool that bad people use to try to poison a society. Anti-Semitism is the first indication of a cancer in a society. And we have to talk about it and we have to address it and we have to educate people. We have to switch the dialogue. We can't think of this as this binary uh, football match between Israel and Palestine. It's not that. There's only two sides. If there's two sides to this, the sides are peace and acceptance and you know, moving forward as a civilization, and the other side is violence and terrorism. And we have to, we have. This is really about good and evil. It's about our humanity. It's not just a Jewish issue. It's it's a it's like if we don't talk about this, and if we don't recognize this, and if people have lost the ability to distinguish between good and evil, 
we are in serious trouble. Yeah, I recently attended a panel discussion on uh, the situation since October 7th, and it was billed as like a teach-in for peace, that kind of thing. And outside of like a very quick comment made by the person introducing the moderator and the panelists, nobody mentioned October 7th. <laughs> it was just like, wow. like it didn't happen. Like it didn't fucking happen. Wow. Like everything started it's, October 8th. Yeah. And, you know, Israel woke up and decided to just be whatever it is people want to say they were, you know, a genocidal, apartheid. Yeah, it is. It is unbelievable. I, I want you have a character called Purple Hair Girl. And I uh, love yeah, Purple Hair Girl. I love that character. And I would also imagine that a lot of people don't because it might offend people in some way. But to me, that character is the quintessential character that illustrates what biting s satire is supposed to do, like in, in yeah. Lenny Bruce fashion, like to just really get people thinking because you're just coming at it directly, no bullshit. What was the motivation for that character and what's, what still is behind her? Well, yeah, we're going to be doing more Purple Hair Girl as well. But um, so basically I wanted to sort of create um, I wanted to try to de-escalate the situation and have it be something that people could laugh about. So I decided to create a Mr. Rogers neighborhood sort of show where I'm sort of this, I'm Mr. Daniel and I'm trying to help my purple hair uh, friend uh, who has become radicalized to become a Jew hater, understand basic facts about Israel and, and, uh, and anti-Semitism. And so I actually think Purple Hair Girl is a very mild depiction of some of these activists and young people. Like she's more of a clown and just doesn't really know what she's talking about, uh, as opposed to someone who's really caught up in like a really serious Jew hate sort of energy. But um, but yeah, I uh, I basically did those videos because um, there are basic facts that are not being acknowledged and that people need to be made aware of, uh, especially in terms of just basic things. People don't realize that 20% of Israel is Arab, both Muslim and Christian. So hello, you honestly think that like, they're gonna be committing genocide against Arabs? Like they wanna kill all these Arabs, but the Arabs that they live with, oh no, 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 we'll leave them. We won't kill them. We'll just kill these Arabs over here. Like, it doesn't make logical sense. There's so much that people need to learn, and they need to, um, and they, they really, they, it needs to happen because um, this sort of thing, this sort of hate and this misinformation, it can destroy a whole society, and it can destroy a whole generation of, of young people, you know? Especially as soon as you form these really hard, um, opinions and you're unwilling to learn and take in new information, it's really hard for people to admit that they were wrong about something. Mm. You know, it's really hard. So we need to try to, uh, to stop this now and to educate people now. And uh, so I did that with Purple Hair Girl. And yeah, maybe people thought it was crass or, you know, but whatever. Like at this point, if you say, I went to a bat mitzvah, people will be like, you're, you support genocide. <laughs> like nothing you could possibly do at this, like isn't going to piss so people true. off. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So I figured, you know what? I'll put on my little purple wig and be purple hair girl and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, well, people people don't like having a, like a mirror held up to them. That's that's the problem. Absolutely, you absolutely. Know. Well, you know, then you're not going to like me because that's what I do all day. Well, Daniel, I think you have a very important voice, and I hope you keep using it. Uh, good luck with your shows, March 2nd and 3rd at Red Eye, New York, in Manhattan. And uh, we hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Thank you so much, Andy. All righty. Take care. Okay, bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week.